On Pop Fiction Women, we explore what it means to be a complicated woman. Tired of endless variations of leading men next to one-dimensional archetypes of women or strong female leads written by men that were essentially guys in women's bodies. We started this show to highlight the many female characters in entertainment that are worth exploring, as well as the women who dreamt them up. And now we're adding those creators to our conversations, discussing their process and passion in bringing these women to life. Welcome to Complicated Conversations. On these episodes, there's no spoilers. So come on, it's starting. The Kimberly McCrate interview highlights. We talked about writing with Kimberly McCrate, New York Times bestselling author. We talked about a lot about her process. She's obviously had a lot of experience and a lot of little nuggets of wisdom for us newbies. Yes. We also talked about baking. We talked about baking. Yes. We talked about astrology. That was my favorite part. And my it was my favorite part, even though it was crammed at the end. What I loved about it was that it was so surprising. Yes. I wasn't planning to ask it, but I felt like the interview went so well. I was like, let's just let's just go out with this. Let, let me just put out some feelers because she's never talked about it as far as I can tell. You know, her her astrological sign isn't on her Instagram mm-hmm. profile. There was no reason to think. There's nothing in the book. That, right. That, that was no. our entree with our last author. That's that there right. There's something in the book a about the character's horoscope. Yeah. Yes. So I had nothing to go on. And Kate, you know very well what you said in the interview. Sometimes <laughs> when we bring this topic up without any indication that it's a welcome topic, it goes badly. Yeah. You're just weird. Then. Right. If the person's not into it, then you look very strange. Yes. And I was like, this could kill our interview, which was so good. And I didn't want to. But I don't know. I just had a feeling. And I asked. I almost tried to couch it as like, this is for record purposes. Like, we need to know your astrological signs because we're keeping a tally of, which by the way, we are. Yes. And then she gave the best response. Yes. Like, oh my God, I've been waiting for this question. Like, she would have been mad at us I if we didn't know. ask it. I loved that. That was so good. And even with that little bit, I was like, okay, emboldened to ask what her sign was. And then she went into her other signs, not just her sun sign, which is what normally people respond when they say what's their sign. She knew her rising sign. Oh, so good. That was, I love that. The book is out now. It is a really great read, really smart, really compelling, and most importantly, really satisfying. When you get to the end, you're like, okay, this all is the way it was supposed to be, and I'm happy right now. Isn't just about getting to the end. It is a thriller and seeing what happens, but actually being satisfied along the way, which, as you point out to her in the interview, is not always easy to do. It's not. And she said, when you're writing, is this going to come together? I was really impressed at how she's willing to just trash stuff she's written and then kind of starts all over. And she was talking about 10 or 12 drafts. And then as she's just rewriting and rewriting, the story is really kind of unfolding before her own eyes. I loved hearing about that. And I loved how she called at one point, she says, that's that's the magic of it. And I was like, okay, yes, the magic of it. She is also, though probably being a Virgo, very practical about it and how she's like, okay, let me just start out saying nothing about writing is natural to me. Nothing about this is easy. Easy, Yeah. yeah. And there's never any certainty. Yeah. She fought being a lawyer. I mean, sorry, fought being a writer for so long and went the more practical, mm-hmm. safe route of being a lawyer, but yeah. now she was denying her real self. And no matter how much she tried to push it away, she just couldn't. And you know what I've really loved? I loved that she had spent all that time working on herself and working on her writing. And then Reconstructing Amelia was a huge hit. She didn't just come out of the gates with like a nice little book. She came out with a New York Times bestseller that was everywhere, optioned by Blossom Films, Nicole Kidman. She came out of the gates hard, and which is good yeah. after 10 years. I also loved when you read her words and she's like, knew that she needed security and she did not want to follow the path of a writer. It's too uncertain. And she's like, well, here I am all these years later as a writer, as a successful writer who's now on her sixth book. 
Yeah, uh, and she's like, it's still uncertain. Trilogy in there, so. mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she's like, and it's still uncertain. I knew it. Yeah. I, I knew it then and I was right. But I now don't think of that as so scary and terrible anymore. No, it doesn't get any easier is what she said. But but it must a little. I mean, yeah. But there are different pressures then, right? She's saying, as we can all relate to, then it's just a a new goal or raising the bar. What are you going to do next? Yeah. I was her discussions on marriage. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And how I just loved, I could picture her. She's saying, we were talking about the promo clip that she put together, which was so brilliant Mm -hmm. of conversations among married couples. And you guys compared it to the... The little vignettes mm-hmm. you know, when, when Harry, Harry met Sally, Sally. Yeah. which you love. Yes. And she told us a story of how she tried to get some of her friends on, other couples, to talk <laughs> about their marriage. And she thought, well, this is great. Yeah, like who wouldn't want to do this? Because she's obviously very interested in that mm-hmm. topic and in examining what makes a good marriage. The book is called A Good Marriage. Yes. And she said she was so surprised when some of her friends were like, no, no, I don't want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Which... And now she, I just picture her like the one at cocktail parties, which is something we would do. Being like, yes. so tell me about your marriage. Yes. What do you think works or what doesn't? And, and yes. you realize that it's, and it's not because necessarily someone has a bad marriage that they don't want no. to talk about it. It's just sort of like, why, why am I talking about that? Or why are you asking me about yes. that? They, they yes. think it's they, personal, but they also don't want to I think they it. don't, they don't want to dig in. And like she yeah. said, some of them will say, you know, it's great or it's fine. She's like, I'm not even sure they know. They don't. They don't think about it. So I thought that was very interesting. Yeah. So it was a great interview. We had a great time with her. We expect this book to do big things, not only for the promotion that she's had beforehand, but really, I think the strength is going to be through word of mouth. This is just a satisfying book that everyone's going to be talking about and passing along. So enjoy our interview. We are joined today by Kimberly McCrate, the New York Times bestselling author of Reconstructing Amelia, which was nominated for the Edgar, Anthony, and Alex Awards and was Entertainment Weekly's favorite book of the year. Her second novel, Where They Found Her, was a USA Today bestseller and a Kirkus Best Mystery of the Year. After a wildly successful YA trilogy, she's back with her third adult novel, A Good Marriage, which is the reason that we're here today. Thank you so much for taking the time to discuss A Good Marriage with us. I Thanks so re- much for having me. I really loved this book. It's smart, it's compelling, and it's so satisfying. I feel like satisfying is kind of a neglected word when it comes to thrillers. You know, you're just all about pacing and premise. But if you close the book dissatisfied, you're not going to go tell your friends to read it. But that's not the case for this book. You really managed to subvert our expectations, which is what we want so a story doesn't feel stale or boring, but you also met our expectations for closure and justice, and accomplishing that is really hard. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the story of A Good Marriage? Well, thank you so much, first of all. That is the highest compliment. And I will say that the hardest part of writing a mystery thriller for sure is obviously having the pieces all come together at the end suspense in the setup is it's not easy to come by but it's it is <laughs> to some extent, it's much easier than kind of delivering on that promise as you're as you're starting out to write something you're like oh god i hope <laughs> i can make this come together at the end so thank you thank you very much a good marriage is set in my neighborhood Parkslope, brooklyn it takes place over a week in the summer where all the kids are mostly away at sleepaway camp and the parents are gearing up for the event of the summer, uh-huh, which is an adults only sexually adventurous party. It's sexually adventurous, but it's really just meant to be fun. Every year it's always just been in good fun. But this year after the party, a woman ends up dead. Her husband is quickly arrested. He reaches out to a former law school classmate uh, named Lizzie, asks for her help. Lizzie is an outsider to the neighborhood whose own marriage is faltering. Uh, As she's drawn into Park Slope, kind of trying to uncover what really happened, she realizes that neither her friend nor his wife were who they appeared to be. But the reality is uh, neither is Lizzie's own husband. So it's part legal thriller, part domestic suspense, but it's also meant to be a genuine exploration of what it means to sustain a marriage over time and 
this secret couples keep and the compromises they make in order to stay together, whatever the cost. So good. And that's a great summary. And you've hit on a lot of the things that we're going to want to talk to you about today. But let me start with Lizzie. We were so invested in Lizzie, almost as much as we were in finding out what happened to Amanda. Lizzie was clearly dissatisfied with her life as it is at this point in time, but it was also a life she was committed to. She was still holding on to her marriage, sometimes by a thread, as you referenced, but holding on nonetheless to love, to forgiveness, to their past, while also not letting Sam off the hook. You know, she expected more of him. The past was what bonded them, but it wasn't enough to take them much further. She needs Sam to meet her there. Can you talk a little bit about Lizzie, what inspired her, what challenges you found as you wrote her? Again, thank you. I love Lizzie. So then the rest of what I'm going to say may sound a little strange, but she is definitely the character that's closest to me in in personality in a basic way. As, a, as an author, you find that really all the characters in your book in some way are a piece of you, uh, which is unfortunate for all people who know you. <laughs> you have all those terrible people <laughs> are a piece of you. But, you know, it, it, in some basics, and obviously I went to the University of Pennsylvania Law School, Lizzie did too. So there's there's some just general similarities and a, a bit of her kind of work ethic drive above anything else uh, we share, which actually made her a challenge to write. I find that the characters who are most removed from me are the easiest to connect to. Uh, somebody like Amanda, who's really different from me, so, because you're really acting as you inhabit them. And so you you know you need to explain everything to a reader or, or, or show it because you're showing it to yourself in some way. When a character is closer to you, emotionally, in life circumstance, et cetera, you I think under explained sometimes yeah. Um, yeah. because there's a sense of like, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, right. You all, everybody knows. <laughs> no, actually yeah, they don't know, it. you know, <laughs> because the characters like you. And that was through, you know, working with my editor and, and my agent and readers uh, kind of were reaching for, for more way, a way to connect to her. And so I'm really grateful for that because, and, and actually in that process, then she became less like me. Right. So I really allowed her to, to stand on her own and be a separate person for me. And she's also, because I think you really over-relate to the character that's really your entree into the story. She's really our, you know, our guide. She's the outsider looking into this, this situation. She's also looking at her own life. I feel so like my own life is very, you know, flawed. So I really have a lot of empathy for her. She struggles to make sense of, of what she wants and how to make it all work, which again, really goes to the central theme of the novel, which is, you know, how do you sustain a marriage over many years? Years, not just the beginning, not just a few years in, but over the long haul, particularly after children are older. So yeah, so she was um, a really fun character. I really connect with her emotionally. I feel like I want to write another book about her because <laughs> she's, I really, I really like her so much, but, and I, you're just kind of pulling for her because she's really not in a great place and knows it when the book opens. So that's interesting to think about the character that's closest to yourself, those blind spots that you might have. That's interesting insight as a writer. But you've written not just a great Lizzie, but some remarkable female characters, Amanda, Sarah, Maud, Millie. I personally loved Wendy Wallace. I want some more Wendy Wallace, like a spinoff or something. I would watch her in anything. But you made these characters so complicated, which is a real theme in our podcast. They all had their own lives, challenges, histories, secrets, but it all felt very natural and real. They were developed perfectly and they worked in service of the reader's experience, not just the plot. We know from your first five published books that you're a master of plot. There was never going to be a question. But here, I really connected with the characters on, on another level from, from some of your previous books. Do you do a lot of character work or did you for this one? Was, or was it just a natural development in your writing style in addition to your plotting? How do character and plot work for you? That's a great question. First of all, nothing about writing it for me is like natural. <laughs> the whole thing's impossible. So I just want to make that clear. I, I don't I don't do any advance or separate work. Some of my friends who are writers on Instagram and they have like these crazy things pinned to their walls with like strings attached. It's like homeland, yeah. you know, or like yeah. <laughs> to a spy conspiracy. I also don't like journal about my characters or I, I don't do any of those things. 
it would sound like really great things and it would probably make the process um, much more streamlined, but I just, I don't do know how to do any of those things. So I really just write my way into the book. I have a general idea of where, um, I, I know generally I'll know like the central twist of the spine and, and where I'm generally going. And then I get my characters and then use who they are, I would say, in part to drive the plot. And so I think that is the connection that you're talking about is if you lead with character, uh, it really does guide the plot, I think, in a, in a more meaningful way. Because I don't outline, I am not constrained. I'm not even guided by like a what happens, you know, what happens next. I like, I'm like, I don't know <laughs> what happens next. What would this person do in this situation? I think that helps. Now, just to be clear, um, when I do that and finish the first draft, like the first drafts are absolutely terrible, um, unreadably bad. So I don't want to make it sound like, oh, I just sit down and my characters guide me and it all makes sense. No, in general, like <laughs> none of it makes sense when it's done then. So then I also, as I revise, I, you know, I'll have something that has a lot of holes and, and what have you. But then I return to, again, asking myself, why? I'm trying to, it's hard, always hard to talk about the book because you want to get specific without yeah. giving anything away. But right. we know that Lizzie ends up taking the case and she has a, a partner that she works with and who ends up suggesting she takes the case. And I, I won't explain why he does that because that will give something away. But there was a why. So I, I wrote the scene in which he then tells her to take it. And I was like, this is the part that I love most about writing because it operates on such a subconscious level. Mm, <laughs> it's like the magic yeah. part, right? So I was like, he's going to do this. I know he should do this. And then I would step away, not until revision. I'd be like, but why would he do that? Like, that does, like, why, why, why? Like, I know he should do that. I instinctually know that, but I don't know why. And, and if you read the book, you will see the why in the end. But that, that took really sitting inside him. And to think like, what would be his Achilles heel and why, like, how did he get to where he is? But it really helps answer the plot questions for me. It makes the whole process extremely messy <laughs> because you end up with like dangling things that really take a lot of thinking to figure out how they, how they thread back together. And you really have to kind of take characters and turn them around and, and, and think, does this character really need to be exactly this way I've set them up to be? You know, because often you find that you default to certain assumptions as a writer and based on your own personality. I tend to, to I, I think I make everyone be a little bit not the nicest people. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, wait, but what if this person was just nice? <laughs> they could just they could just be a good person. And it's, like, <laughs> it's such a crazy idea. <laughs> so I, you do have to examine those because sometimes it makes your predispositions um, yeah. to rote or predictable. And how do you see those developments as you're writing it? It's so hard once you've gotten through a full draft and you have ideas, you know what you really like and what's working and what's not. But then you have to kind of start all over and you just let it go. You just keep going with it. That's... You mean like, do you have to let go of your original, whatever your original? Yeah, like this original? person shouldn't be nice or, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, because I don't do advanced work, I just accept that that's my process, right? That I'm going to have to, I mean, this yeah. book, I probably did 10 or 12 rewrites, but I mean, like, rewrote every word again oh, and wow. again and again. That's just how I do it. I right. wish there was another way to do it because it's a terrible way. <laughs> it's just very time consuming, but I, I don't, I don't have another way. It is helpful that I've accepted that as my process because mm -hmm. I'm not tied to really anything. That's really helpful to hear for some, I, I'm kind of a throw up writer. Like I just put everything out there, but then I often think like, well, then I've done it wrong because after two or three drafts, if it's not right, no, but you're saying if yeah. you like to work with that messy that you got to keep going 10, 12, whatever it is. Right. Yeah. I mean that, have you heard of that term being a pantser, a fly yeah. by the seat of your pants? Right. Yeah. So I think you just really have to embrace the reality of it. And when I say 10 to 12 drafts, I mean, there were there were many drafts before I submitted, but then even when I submitted, I actually w worked with a new editor to me this time, Jennifer Barth, who edited a million wonderful books, but we had never worked together before. And when I handed it to her, I was like, she's probably going to be like, oh my God, because a lot of people don't revise as much as I do. She did an amazing job of just being really calm and having faith that I was going to I mean, there were, there were, there are multiple elements to the book. There are narrative chapters, but there are also other elements. I will say there were like 
six other elements that aren't in the book now that I pulled out. There were lengthy flashbacks from different characters' points of view that were taken out and moved around because it's in there for a reason. So you have to think like, what did this accomplish? How can I accomplish it another way? It's like a puzzle. And not only is the story a puzzle, but like figuring out how to represent that story as a puzzle. Wow. That's encouraging. I mean, I, that might be frightening for plotters, but for Panzer, that's really great to hear. Yeah. So let's talk about marriage. You've, you've mentioned that. I mean, this book will appeal to so many types of readers. It's a strong legal thriller with the tintillation of the Park Slope parents and their sleepover soiree. But on a deeper level, there are lots of wonderful little moments where the characters very naturally discuss marriage. Usually their perceptions of another person's marriage. Uh, Amanda thinks Sarah has the perfect marriage. Sarah, really everyone, is drawn to Maud's gorgeous husband in their unique marriage. Amanda comes to terms with the sacrifices she's made in her own marriage. And Zach has an insightful comment about Lizzie's marriage. Yeah, he says, I was Amanda's knight in shining armor, you know. I did rescue her in some ways, which felt good. I worked my ass off so we could have the comforts money could buy. Maybe that's not all that mattered, though. I should have taken better care of her. Isn't that what a good spouse does? And then he turns to Lizzie and he says, you've made huge sacrifices. You did it because your husband needed you. You accepted his problems as your problems. You're a much better person than me. Now, when you've had read the whole book... There's a lot of complicated stuff going <laughs> right. on there. <laughs> right. But I think that what Zach's getting at in this scene and what I see for a lot of people is whether your division of, of labor is traditional or not traditional, you get set in your ways, right? You get set in this is my realm and this is your realm. And they sort of, you can get on a parallel track. And, it, and the marriage loses its give and take, its ability to kind of grow and breathe. But Lizzie, as much as her marriage isn't perfect, you get the sense that her and Sam are really partners. And this, to me, is a good marriage. It seems like there's collaboration, there's partnership, there's meaningful interaction, even when it's not easy, even when it's complicated. But they're kind of working together. I think Sam and Lizzie had the best marriage of this book. I hope that's not weird or I don't know if people will agree with me, but that was really my feeling. Yeah. I mean, I don't, again, I, I don't want to be too spoilery, but yeah. I definitely don't think you're far off. There definitely are marriages in the book that I think are, are a good marriage. And it's not necessarily the ones that you expect when the book opens. A lot of the inspiration of the book was I've been married 18 years because I obviously got married when I was like 10. Yes. <laughs> I just explains everything. You know, we spent a lot of time with couples who've been married a, a similar amount of time. And I'm, I'm, I've always been genuinely fascinated by how different everybody's marriage seems. Mm -hmm. And I will say that like I'm a child of divorce and at a very young age. So I, I never, I wasn't raised around marriages. So I really came, the, I come to marriage a bit uh, like a clean slate. My marriage is the only marriage I really know. And so I, when I look around at other people, I think, you know, we'll go out with a couple who, you know, they argue the entire dinner and then they're really affectionate at the end. And I'm like, yeah. like do, we, do they actually hate each other? Do they yeah. seem like they hate each other? Like, I, I don't know. I don't know. And then yeah. I'm, around, I'm like, do we hate each other? Like, I, 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 don't, I don't even know. Um, and so I think it's every person is different, obviously, but but a marriage is like this living thing right? Between two people and it changes over time. Maybe you have children, maybe you don't, you, you change jobs, you, you go through ups and downs. And that dynamic is a really interesting thing. And I think we read a lot about the secrets a husband keeps from a wife. But I think the idea of the secrets a couple keep from the world and not just ones so they can appear perfect, but just ones sometimes I don't even know they're keeping. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of times people are like, I'm I'm so happy. Like if you go and ask, I mean, I, I, I have friends where I'm like, so are you happy? Like, do you, are you happy? Do you have a happy marriage? They're like, yeah. And I'm, and I'm not even sure they know they're right. not, they're happy. Right. Because we're all dealing with so, so many things in our lives and contemplating and really like reflecting on your marriage isn't something a lot of us have a lot of time for. You're trying to make so many other things work. So you're right that really, and, and that it is this thriller with all these aspects to it, but I was really, I, what I came to the book to do was to really look at marriage um, and unpack it. And I think as an institution, there's a lot of ideas about what makes a good marriage. Um, and they're very black and white. 
fidelity being one. Mm -hmm. The idea if you have an open marriage, that's obviously a terrible thing, or you should always be honest. Honesty is absolutely critical, but can you be too honest? (laughs) Relentlessly so. And so it really plays with a lot of those ideas. And and it's meant to create a parallel also with the legal system. If you look at that as another kind of like rigid institution where it's black and white, like you're a good guy or a bad guy, people are guilty or innocent. This book looks at somebody who's well, maybe you're you're not guilty of this, but maybe you're guilty of something else. And what does it really mean to be innocent? So it, it's meant to create a parallel between those things, because I think the idea of there being a lot of clarity in either institution is really just a fallacy. And I love that you did what we think is a very smart book trailer where you got some of your friends to weigh in on what makes a good marriage. And how, how did you get them to do that? <laughs> It's really funny. I'll tell you the funniest part is my husband and I filmed one of ourselves last weekend. uh, And in it, we have to refilm it because he looks like it looks like a hostage video. (laughs) I was like, I cannot. I was like, if I post this somewhere, it looks literally like not only have you already divorced me, but I can barely make you sit on the couch with me. And the book Um, is called A Good Marriage, not a bad marriage. Exactly. I was like, we're going to have to redo it. So we'll see if we can ever get it right. But um, yeah, so I, I I did something similar with the Reconstructing Amelia, my first book, where I had a, a trailer. I like doing documentary-style trailers, so I like really getting to the themes of the book. I think repre- it's very hard, obviously, to represent in a narrative way a book trailer with with images. I mean, it's just you don't have the you don't have the budget as as an author to do that, do justice to it. So yeah. I don't like to do that, but. Getting at the themes is something that I'd love to do. So what was so interesting about that is it's one of the first marketing related things I did with the book was to reach out to people I know and say, would you come sit on the couch and answer these questions? And I really, I'm so fascinated. I like, I love hearing people talk about their marriages. I just think it's really, I was so excited. I was like, this is going to be awesome. I'm going to sit there all day and listen to people of all different ages. And some of them I knew, some of them, you know, were people the director brought in. So I didn't know everybody, but I immediately got a lot of pushback from people because I thought, this is no big deal. You'll come, you'll sit, I'll give you a gift card and it will be fine. And right away, everyone was like, no, I'm not doing that. And I, I was like, oh, Oh, people don't want to talk about their marriages. I was surprised by that because I, I I feel like I don't have any illusions of my marriage being this like perfect thing. So I was like, no, everyone's going to send the couch and talk about their marriage is flawed. But a lot of people don't want to do that. So I actually had a harder time finding people willing to do it. So I'm very grateful for those friends who, who did do it. And I had a great director friend who's a documentary filmmaker. So he asked some great questions to get to um, the people saying some really amazing things. And those really are all married couples. Obviously it was inspired by when Harry met Sally, um, when they sit on the couch in between. And I, Mm -hmm. I just love that. Like I I, I think people's stories are just That's Corinne's favorite part of When Harry Met Sally. It's the best part. (laughs) We we cover that on the podcast. And I was like, eh. And she's like, this is the best part. (laughs) It adds so much. It adds so much context. And I don't know. I find it so interesting, too. I loved in the trailer that people were willing to say that honesty isn't that important. I actually agree, you know, in the way the nuance that they were kind of giving it. It's not always I think communication is the most important thing, communication over honesty. If you're being honest about your feelings, but people take honesty like, oh, well, you know, where were you or what did, you know, it's, it's not, it's not so literal. The honesty has to come from what you're feeling, what you're going through, where you are and how to bridge that gap. So I I loved that, especially. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, It's funny. I just asked the similar question. I'm giving away copies of my book on Instagram and I asked the question of, um, do you think honest, honesty is the best policy or, or do you think you must be honest in your marriage or something? And I really, I love nothing more than reading people's responses because yeah. it, there is there is a range. I mean, people some people feel very strongly mm-hmm. that you must be completely honest. Like they'll, they'll say, okay, if somebody you know asks if you look good in an outfit or something or, or yeah. if you've gained weight, you can lie about those things, but that's it. And I just think it's interesting. Um, I mean, I agree with you, obviously. I wrote a book kind of examining the gray areas of, of marriage, but marriage is hard. I don't know how you could get through it 
was actually complete and total honesty right. for very long. So, and, um, and are you being honest about the right things, whatever that means? Or are you being honest about the wrong things? You might tell somebody exactly where you are all the time and then never tell them, I feel lonely or I'm struggling with this or I feel like a failure here. So honesty, I, I guess it really depends how you define it. But I loved watching that. So on our podcast, we talk a lot about complicated women, which just to us means human, three-dimensional people. We have victories, we have failures, we have moments where we exhibit almost superhuman strength and those where we fall completely apart. And sometimes it's not just one point in time. We have contradictory parts of our personality that always coexist. Like I happen to be a total type A overachiever who just casually drops Buddhist non-attachment principles into regular conversation. So do you have something like that for yourself apart from your characters? Because we definitely see it in them. Or maybe a story about a failure that ended up being a blessing or something that changed everything for you. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a really interesting question. I think almost everything about me is a contradiction. It makes it very confusing. That's how I feel. I'm an extremely, I think, tough person, uh, meaning uh, I don't let a lot of people in close to me, into my life. I, I have a lot of defenses up. It's just how I move through the world. And, you know, <laughs> the function of how I grew up. But once you are on the inside... I'm so unbelievably sensitive and easily hurt. It's like I'm wearing a suit of iron and inside it's liquid. <laughs> so if you're, if you really get, it's literally like, you, and, and there's probably, I don't know, like 15 or 20 people on the inside, but they can hurt my feelings very, very easily. I don't recommend it as an approach to life. It's not so great. I don't think it's optional. I'm that way too. <laughs> right. and yeah. again, it's definitely it's- not optional. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, unfortunately, if you guys figure out a way to change it, let me know because it would be great. Uh, but yeah, but that that's probably one of the biggest contradictions to me. And if you if you meet me and only know me like on a surface level, you you would not you would not realize how sensitive I am. So staying with our complicated woman theme of the podcast, like who are the complicated women that inspire you? And you can draw from real life or fiction or both. I think Hillary Clinton is a really complicated person. I do really love her. And I watched that Hulu documentary um, about her, which was fantastic. And I spent the whole time being like, oh, I love you so much. I just think she's obviously she's brilliant and she's all these things. But that, and I think she is very warm. I read like that part of her really resonated for me that she has kind of these defenses up. But I think she's a really deeply warm person and a lot of other levels. And you can see it from talking to the people that are close to her. And she had may has made a lot of hard choices in her life. And going back to changing her name for Bill Clinton's whatever second run for governor or whatever. She's just a powerhouse. And so I, I feel an enormous amount of empathy for her. As a person, she's obviously incredibly inspiring in terms of what she's accomplished and how brilliant she is. And I find her complicated and inspiring. That's, and that's I think answer. I think my my daughters are uh, very complicated uh, uh, <laughs> and ins- wow. and inspiring. What's funny is you, you like raise daughters and, and you try, I think probably a lot of uh, women, I found like I was really cognizant of like the, the way I wanted to bring them into the world as women. So when they were little, like I was, I was like really just insane about like no princesses, no Barbie dolls, like no one wore pink. Like that was, there were no pink, <laughs> pink Legos. And so it's really interesting now they're a little bit older. My older daughter is 16 to watch how that has manifested itself the people they have become and like so fearless in so many ways and then like randomly scared of things and I I find that watching like like a woman grow up and also having kind of they were brought into a world in which everything feels possible to them I'm going to take a little credit for it the world has also changed but we were so huge on sciences like they're both math and science kids and it just doesn't occur to them like certain things just don't occur to them yeah. that are very gendered and it's yeah. really interesting again I don't know how much of that is just because of who we are as parents but I'm like is that because I kept the pink Legos out of here like they really <laughs> just don't like it doesn't occur to them and they get actually angry about stuff like that when they see it now now that they're older I hope it, it, you know, the world beats it out of you, you know, like when yeah. I, when I look at that, I think about for Hillary Clinton. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so yeah. I, you know, I think that they're so hopeful now that, that they can make any choice they want and that it doesn't matter that they're girls. And I, 
I just think, God, please hold on to that as long as you can, yes. because I think we know it does matter for better and for worse. But they, but again, they're 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 complicated. You know, they both. You know, all of what I said is just true, and they made me on one of my you know, quarantine runs to the Rite Aid, I had to get them like basically press, uh, they're not lead press on nails anymore, but press on nails <laughs> so they could both put fake nails on. So I like AIDS, like I study and yeah. Contradiction, yeah. Contradiction. I, guess. I love that. Yeah. We love that. It's just human. Right. And part of this podcast for us is exploring those things because men have been able to do that. Men have been able to be so many different things and there just aren't quite as many role models of that. And that's another thing. I don't know whether it's because of the pink Legos too. I also did the same for my daughter. She's a little bit younger, but it's also you. It's having, you know, that role model in your house where this is just how you are. You're not taking a gendered, like everything in one line. So they see that from you too. I, I know, or at least for me, for my daughter, and I imagine it for you too. Which makes for a kind of an interesting segue. I thought I'd go very easily into baking from Hillary Clinton because she famously said she wasn't home baking cookies. But whatever the transition is, I need to talk about baking. (laughs) Because something happened to me when I had kids. All of a sudden, I I don't know what, it wasn't conscious, but I was like, I need to be baking. I need, baking seems very important to me right now. And it started when they started going to school and they had their classroom birthdays. Now, it didn't need to be that way because all of the other mothers were bringing in sprinkles, baked by Melissa, two red hens. I didn't have to bake. No one was bringing in baked goods. But for me, in my head, something I was like, I have to start doing this. And then every year I was upping the ante. As they got older, I'm like, well, what do you want? Pokemon, pandas, butterflies, whatever it is, I would, they would find a picture. I would try to make it. Some years, I mean, it really almost killed me. Both of my, my kids are born in February at the very end of February. So it's always crunch time, no matter what's going on in my life. No, Even if I have all the time in the world, and most of the time I don't. So I know that you put similar pressure on yourself around Christmas time, the end of December, to bake your Christmas cookies. Your face is so priceless to me that I'm like, she knows, she understands. This is where we do need the video imagery yes. because this is this is saying more than the words. I'm like, she gets what I'm saying so much. But so tell me, can we talk about this? I don't even know have a question. I just need to understand more. I need to talk to somebody who has the same affliction. Well, yeah, you hope, you'll hope you hope she'll explain what purpose this yes. serves in your life, right? Yes. Have some what am insight. I doing? Well, first, I think that we need to issue a warning to anybody listening: is never ever start because you right. will not be able to stop. Yeah. Oh my god! I don't, and I don't mean yes. like you won't be able to stop, like because of a personal whatever. But once you start doing that, the world expects you to keep doing it. They won't let you stop, even if you want to stop. No one will let you stop. I um, actually gave that advice to a, a new dad who who was just asking asking about really ridiculous stuff. I'm like, listen, all that matters is just think about what you start because yes. you will not be able to stop it. Right. Do not set the bar too high yes. because start you are the bar low. right. Start low. Start low. Like so. So I agree with you. My daughters both have birthdays in March, 10 days apart. So Mine are 10 days apart too in February. Yeah. yeah, So it's the same thing. So same issue. My husband, I have to like, on Father's Day and his birthday, I'm like baking, you know, from the Magnolia cakes for, I'm like, why am I fucking baking cakes? Like what, how did this happen? What what did I do? I started doing it because again, I, I didn't really grow up with a family. So like I, for me, looking at other kids growing up or just my idea of what like, people who had a family did they were they baked stuff and it shows I'm a, I'm a terrible terrible cook and I hate to cook my husband does all the all the cooking I absolutely hate it it's very stressful for me but baking <laughs> is in 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 a non-stressful time if I have lots of time uh, baking is a relaxing the idea of baking used to be relaxing but um I am much busier now than when I started the tradition like 16 years ago probably when I had my my daughter so I started and I started with just a few but it was like I only can do it one way like I have to do this big thing that has components like their chat each cookie's a chapter and has and every year my my husband's like you could just cut a few I'm like no but it's it has to it's like has now a shape and it's right it's just a story it makes sense right. together <laughs> exactly so part of it is my own I I'm joking that they don't let they don't let me stop which they wouldn't let me stop entirely but I could definitely contain it um 
a little bit more than I do. I think there is a bit of a the writer in there, right? That that has you doing things like that. It takes time, you know, you, you get to complete it, you get to see it when it's finished. It's a it for me it it like scratches a similar itch. I'm a long distance runner and so for me it's the same thing. So you know something I can train for over time and look at it on the horizon. So I, I like that piece of it. But it is really true that it's one thing to be doing I'm much, much busier now just with work and life than I was years ago. So now it is like, it's absurd. I'm doing it in like three, like in the middle of the night, like two days yes. beforehand. Yeah. So it's funny. I appreciate your thing about the cakes. I have no um, detail skills. So I've never taken on like doing something that, that has like a, an art component to it. No. So but I literally, um, when you said that, like, like my shoulders went up, I just <laughs> like vicariously felt so stressed for you yes. I do. I do understand it for sure. By the way, I'm not good at it. It's just, (laughs) you know, it's my kids have been young and they see a picture and they're like, okay. And then it sort of looks, you know, they're not too discerning at this point. So um, look, I've seen your work. It looks like it. uh, It does. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not selling them. I'm not opening a bakery, but they are very happy that they get sort of this dream come true thing. And it kills me. But well, I would just, my one warning to you is do know that you just, you could end up making somebody's wedding cake. Oh. <laughs> so just, just be careful. You've got to like reel it in before. And now I'm thinking about steel magnolias and the, the right. groom's cake. Oh, it's already done. Forget it. Exactly. Exactly. I, I know that's going to be requested. Some <laughs> oh, God. Well, I don't speak baking as Corinne knows. Like I am a weekly food prepper and I the thing with baking to me is it, I think you have to be too precise. Like you have to follow the recipe, which is whereas cooking, I am just one of those. I look, I see a recipe or I read it and then I kind of do what I want. And I, it's so funny because as Corinne knows, in the rest of my life, I'm so orderly and meticulous and rule following that you would think I would like baking. But for me, I think cooking is the one place where I can kind of be messy and I feel like I can create something and you can't mess it up. So it's funny. That's the, that I don't, it, right. I'm, I, know. I live in chaos and mess and I'm totally comfortable with that, but baking something being exact is comforting to me. Yeah. But anyway, I can't, I got to get back to the law and writing. You're talking to two lawyers. So, you know, we had to, I have to get back to that. I'm actually still practicing lawyer. So I I'm still in the trenches. So I was very interested in in this area, of course. So in many interviews, I've heard you discuss your background and specifically your path from lawyer to writer. We were particularly struck by what you wrote on your website bio about denying parts of yourself and how ultimately you broke free. And I just want to read what you wrote. You said, for years, I was in denial. No, I was not a writer, I told myself. I could not be, would not be a writer. In college, I actually avoided anything having to do with writing, lest I be tempted to entertain the possibility. As a survivor of a tumultuous childhood, security was critical to me. I knew that no part of writing, not the doing of it, not the selling of it, much less the succeeding at it, was certain. So I vowed I would forego that particular road less traveled for a well-paved highway. I was going to law school. Simple, straightforward, safe. I mean, I it, I couldn't have written those words. It's beautiful. But the, the sentiment is exactly something that resonates with me. I had a tumultuous childhood. Security, stability was like my number one goals. And I, when I went to college... I was going to be a political science major. I never changed that. I decided that senior year of high school, I never changed it because political science majors go to law school. And that's a great path. I did end up adding a second major, which was communication, which for me, I took a lot of rhetoric, speaking, writing classes, and I deluded myself into thinking this would also be good for law school. But I was definitely like flying a little closer to the writer's son there. But But you quickly in your big law experience realized that you were not a lawyer. You you wrote not deep down and that it wasn't too late to be brave. And we just love that. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us um, a little bit more about that and how did you move from that security mindset 
to the brave frame of mind. Well, what's funny is that as you're reading, I haven't read that in a long time. I wrote it many, like, you know, many, many years ago. And I'm like, yeah, that's totally true. It's nothing is secure about it still. <laughs> I mean, that remains a truism about it. Like I, I, I was exactly right. I was correct. <laughs> Everything about it. I took a leave of absence from when I was a lawyer for a year to write my first book. And so I was conditionally brave. I, I managed to do it in a contained way. I deferred my law school loans. I, I had to leave at a really, you know, Paul Weiss, it's a big firm. It's a great job. I knew I could go back to it. So I took risk, not that much. My goal was to write a book in that year. Part of what's hard about writing a book, particularly if you don't have a background in writing, is you're you like, am I any good at this? I don't like, I, I, you know, is this even, am I going to make it? That's what she wants somebody to say. Like, I, because I'm a big believer in hard work and I'll work for a long time without, if you could say it's on the horizon, it's it's 15 years from now. I, I'm like, okay, I can do I'll do it. But no one can even tell you it's on the horizon 15 years from now. That's the problem. And no one can, and maybe people can tell you you're wildly talented, but they still can't tell you that success in any of the arts is, is anywhere uh, and that it will be sustained even once you achieve it once. Mm-hmm. So um, that, that remains true. So, I, but I really had never taken a writing class. And it's a true story. Like I was just like, I had this instinct that it, and I'd written a couple of short stories in high school, but, but, but there's really no way to write a book, but to write one. So I just sat down and wrote one. And at the end of that year, I finished the book. And I also got an agent who almost sold the book. He was a you know well-respected agent. So that's like a lot from my view. I was like, okay, wait, like, just like, let's break this down logically. Like if I got that far in one year, surely, if I work hard, that's what I held on to. Now, I didn't realize that that road would be 11 years long. Uh, and I wrote five other books or four other books. I guess Amelia was my fifth. And that, so it, was, it wasn't a road so much as like a really dark tunnel down, <laughs> just increasingly down. But, you know, you have these little things to hold on to. And you, so, you know, I held on to those for years. But I will say at the end, I was looking for a job. I mean, I had packed it in when I, when I was writing Amelia, it was right when the like 2008, you know, the market mm-hmm. crashed. Yeah. Um, and so I started looking for a job at the worst possible time. I was a, a lawyer, been out of work for a decade. I finished Amelia because I didn't even have that many interviews because so why not just keep writing? And the crazy thing is when I finally got a job offer, it was in the communications department at Penn Law. So I was going to have to commute. I was going to have to commute oh. from, from New York to oh. Philadelphia. And I was like, fine, I'll do it three days a week. It's so being a writer, basically, in their communications department. And a friend of mine had was a dean at that point. So she'd like help me get the interview. And I got the job offer the day before um, the auction, the publishing auction for Amelia, like literally the day before. And I had looked for a job for you wow. know, a year and a half. So wow. um, there's a lot of there was a lot of luck involved in that the way that story ended. So I tell like aspiring writers all the time. That, and it, and also how lucky am I that I was in a situation where I had somebody, my husband financially supported me while I did all that. Uh, and I never thought I would like be home with little kids. And I did, I was home with little kids so I could write at the same time. I had hundreds of thousands of dollars of law school debt. You know, we had to pay off. So it was, a, there were a lot of hard choices made, but I also was really lucky. Like a lot of people don't, have that luxury and they're working another job while they're doing it. So I always like to make that clear because a lot of people are like, how does somebody write? Yeah. Although I did, I will say my second book, when I came back from London, sorry, we were living in London for that year when I wrote my first book. Mm-hmm. When I came back, I went back to work and I wrote my second book every morning between 4 a.m. and 7 a.m. And yeah. I finished that second book in a year. And then my agent told me it was terrible and I should throw it out. <laughs> so if you're going to, it can be a long road. Like you need to like set up a life where you can work at it for a long time. Yeah. And you took those little bits. When I left, I got, I wrote a book pretty quickly. I loved it. I loved the whole process. I got an agent pretty quickly. Again, not really in in the scheme of things, but you know, I think I queried for like six months. I got an agent and I was so excited and I thought this is it. And she almost sold the book too. And I think we got a paperback straight to paperback feeler. And I was like, oh, really, I, that's not what I imagined for my first book and all this. And I was like, this is a failure. This is all a failure. And it took me some time to realize I kind of, this is just the path, you know, this is just how it has to go. So I love that you kind of kept on holding on to those pieces instead of looking them at this as failures, like I did at first. 
when it's just maybe part of the process. And the more I talk to people and the more I'm in the writing communities and I'm going to retreats or conferences or whatever, these are not anomalies. Everyone's got that story. And if you don't, that's the more rare thing than, than the people that have the stories like, oh, this did not pan out or this didn't even come close or they hated this thing that I wrote after I wrote something that they loved. How is that possible? So two things, that was one thing I got from what you were just saying. And then the other is this idea. I know that you were talking about a little bit about financially your husband, but I started writing when I had a family and my own family. And I suddenly had this security, which is a little counterintuitive. I'm kind of just thinking about this as we're talking because then some people feel more saddled with, with responsibility, right? You have a family and you have to keep going on your path. And I was like, no, I have what I've always wanted. And now I can continue to strive for that. And part of that for me was leaving the law and becoming a writer. And I'm just kind of connecting this idea of security. And the security was like, I have people who love me and I am in it with them and they are in it with me and we'll kind of figure it all out. And that was a security that allowed me to be, to kind of make that, that jump. And I don't, I just got that from what you were saying. So that was amazing. No, I think, I do think that having this security and for me, it was, it, it did take people are like, do you regret having gone to law school? And no, because for me, it took having the security of it did. I needed the security, the safety net of knowing that I had that career to fall back on. Um, you know, and, and, and I think a pretty good safety net. It's a, you know, it is. Well, and yeah. I, you know, you still, it, it stays forever. You know, like you, you yeah. do have the sense, you know, that, that you have that. And I think that's something. And I do think with the, with the path to publication, I think knowing that, yes, it is a huge thing to, to sell your first book and to publish your first book. And that is a huge kind of dividing line, but the road remains uncertain. I do think there's a certain liberty in knowing that, that yeah. yes, it will be different when you sell a book, but it will still be hard. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And and there will still be a lot of uncertainty and you will still be as great only as the last great thing you made. There is some freedom in that. It's like, okay, this unpublished part or this pre part, is just part of this longer path, you know, that is still, still stays a little bit, you know, uncertain. I don't know why I find that so comforting. <laughs> yes, it is. You know what you're getting into. And and I love how you said, yeah, what I wrote back then, I was right. <laughs> this yes. <road. laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Or it is. Certain, just get comfortable with it. Period. Yeah. Right? Just, yeah, that's all you can do. What, what is it about us only interviewing former lawyers for these complicated conversations? Right. It just depresses me. I just want you all to know that, <laughs> that, that the rest of you figured out so quickly that it's not quick. It was well quickly that being a lawyer was not for uh, you. I, I did know there was a problem already in law school because I remember yeah. being out with somebody and I found myself thinking like, so what am I going to do with my life? And I was like, third year in law school, I was like, oh shit, I think I'm supposed to be a lawyer. Like, yeah. <laughs> like this is not what I'm supposed to be doing. So I did know I had a bad feeling that that there was a disconnect somewhere. Right. But you still, you guys all all of you and you in particular have managed to like marry these two parts of yourselves, which we love the lawyer and the writer in your novels in such organic ways. I mean, obviously there's the, the, the ways in which your characters maybe are lawyers or they work at law firms. I mean, that's the obvious way, but there are less obvious ways that your legal training sort of seeps into your mysteries and the way you structure them. I mean, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Uh, yeah, I mean, hundred percent. I I think that the way I was taught to think in law school, which is actually to me one of the best parts about law school, yes. is it teaches you to think in this really analytic way. I approach writing the mystery portion again. There's all these different parts of the book, but in terms of the plot and the mystery and the twists, I really approach it like a law school exam, where you're like, you know, yeah, you you I'll go down. I'm I'm gonna present this line of, of thinking in the book. And then I'm like, so if I do this, the opposite side, opposing counsel, who in this case is the reader, um, is going to think this. And and then I want them to then respond in this way, which is literally what you do on a uh, law school. You predict the counter argument. And in, in the case of somebody reading your book, you're predicting if you, if you push on this lever, what they're going to think is happening. And do you want them to think that? And if not, you know, how can you alter thing A to, to make them think C and, you know, thing C rather than thing B. Law school teaches you to really like 
this intellectual rigor when you make an argument. You have to look at it from all sides. Like, is that is that really a truthful, valid argument I'm making? Sometimes you got to make arguments that aren't so truthful and valid because that's all you have. If you've ever written a legal brief, you know that. Like, sometimes you just got to get on a bad argument because that's the argument there is. And that's true of mystery, too. There are sometimes, like, plot points where you, you have to make things happen in a certain way. And, you know, it's not the best thing. But being a lawyer taught me that, too. Like, I can think of conversations with my editors and various books where I'm like, yeah, I know it's not the best solution, but it's the solution that we have to go with because of X, Y, and Z, other things that are happening. That's so interesting. And I see how it works for mystery, but I think it applies to any kind of character development, right? If you're putting to, in, in writing any kind of any genre, if you're putting two characters against each other in some sort of conflict, you're going to have to think about why they're on one side and, and where they're going to get pushback on the other side. That's an interesting tool to be using that that empathy, but also very logical and analytical. Yeah. And I think if you can combine kind of that kind of thinking with what I talked about at the beginning, which is a, the, the character driven part, right? Like the, the ideal is to marry both things, which is to, you, you know, and I do, as I write, kind of break the two things apart. There's a thing about story and plot and structure, and then there's a thing about the character drive. And so it's, it's finding a a marriage. I'm just going to use that right there. Yeah, a marriage right. between the there two. Marriage between the two. That is is the um, trick. Yeah. Well, it's not easy. This book is really fantastic. I really, truly loved it. I think it's going to go far. You've gotten a lot of good press, a lot of good buzz beforehand, which will carry it in the initial. But I really believe the word of mouth is going to carry this one far. It's so satisfying. And like you talked about earlier, I don't want to give anything away, but this gray of like, did you, maybe you didn't do this, but you did this and that makes you worse and this makes you better. And I love that exploration. It was really thought provoking, but at the same time, compelling page turner. Really. Oh, well, thank you so much. Yeah. Well, thank I really you for talking to us. Oh, I have one last question that I may or may not include here, but I need it for my own personal knowledge. Oh, I know what this is. <laughs> we talk a lot about astrology. Oh, yeah, first of all, I was like, when am I going to get the astrology <laughs> questions? Because if I don't get them, I'm going to be really disappointed. <gasps> oh, oh my gosh, I'm so glad because I'm like, I don't want to scare her off or make it weird. Okay, this is part of it now. This is part of it. <laughs> so when, what, what sign are you? Um, a Virgo. Ooh. Oh, my sweet Virgo. I'm on the rising sign. Pisces. Oh. Which basically explains every contradiction yes. in my personality. Just totally. why it makes absolutely no sense. Um, totally. Wait. And I am, in some ways, a thousand percent a Virgo, like yeah. in every observable way. Yeah. Like I, yeah. I really am. Yeah. I, you know, all the rigor and the whatever. Yes. Yeah. Um, but then a hundred percent the heart, the heart of a Pisces for well, sure. And so. it, that connects right to even what you said before. Yeah. I have a similar weird contradiction. Um, I'm an Aries, but with a Capricorn moon. And it's like those two couldn't be any more different. And Capricorn's so disciplined and structured and Aries is so chaotic and messy. And oh my gosh, I'm so, I love that you know all that. I absolutely, I know. Yeah, I spent all of college, you know, we spent all of college doing our tarot cards. So no, I love I, that stuff. Oh so. my gosh. Oh, oh, this is awesome. I because we it. talk so much, obviously, about how much we love it, but also about how weird people think we are and how <laughs> yes. you can't, bring it up at a cocktail party and we keep insisting, oh no, it'll be different this time. And then every time I'll like text Corinne, I'm like, I tried. People think I'm nuts. Yeah. I mentioned, oh, you're a fire sign. And someone was like, I don't even know what that yeah. means. Or All the right, best- well, I'm going to, I'm going to join you guys. We're going to normalize it. So okay. let's just keep talking yes. about it. Good. I love <laughs> as it. Much as, as much as possible. And eventually the tide will turn. I'm gonna- yeah. Yeah. We hope. Yeah. And when people say uh, our favorite is like, you don't really believe in that, do you? And I'm like, what do you mean? do I believe in it? There's, there's planets, there's the earth, there's, there's the gravitational pull. I mean, maybe you don't see the connection, but there is something to astrology. I mean, it's the stars and planets is, is, is not like made up. And by the way, now let me tell you everything about your sign. And then they go, oh, how did you know that? Exactly. Yeah. I love it. I love it personally. Oh, for sure. good. And and what about your family? What do you 
some signs. It's funny, my older, I, it's funny that you said Aries, my, because my, um, yeah, in March, I, my, I have to be. Yeah. My older daughter is an Aries and I had never known an Aries until she, oh um, until she was born. So I was like, Oh my God, you know, what like, do I do with an Aries? Uh, yeah, exactly. So, so she's an Aries. My, my younger daughter is a Pisces. So she's right. They're right oh. on either side. Yeah. And, um, my husband is a Leo, but like every, every planet is okay. like, are you a Leo? Yeah. A Leo. Sorry. Yes. I mean, he'd fully out. So you, you and he would be like, and like does that. he think, I mean, I'm sorry. It's, it is in my opinion, the greatest astrological sign it says every Leo <laughs> on the planet. I mean, it's just like, what it's, is it's hilarious such about a that. Leo like, thing. It's such a Leo thing to say that your really? sign is the best really? sign on the planet. And when I meet other Leos, it's just like, I, I don't know your husband. I love him already. I mean, it's just, <laughs> I, it's just how it goes. And, but I don't know that other signs feel that way about other in their in their sign i don't know no, i think leo's leo's, leo's yeah. The best. yeah absolutely Bill clinton they you know speaking of the clintons he's a leo now who, can, who cannot who cannot believe in astrology when you like see things like that it's right. like that they're just such classic those examples are such classic examples right. yes i know and i mean i do happen to really relate to the characteristics of a leo and i so i i get it when some people are like i don't know i don't relate to my sign but then so like you're saying, maybe they need to know their rising sign yes. or their moon sign. Like when they think they don't get it, it's just, it doesn't mean astrology is wrong. I'm like, let me give you more information. Tell me the exactly. time in which you were born and we'll do a little <laughs> chart. I love it. No, I agree. I agree. So completely. Although completely. I will, you have a convert. I will, ha I will factor in birth order too, because sometimes yeah. that really can affect things. I'm like, yeah. oh, you're not that because you're the baby, right? That's yeah. true. That's true. Yeah. Yes. Well, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure talking to you. And I cannot you wait to follow a good marriage and all it's going to do when this comes out. Oh, well, thank you guys so much. It was, it was such a treat to talk to you. I had a really great time. This has been Pop Fiction Women with Corinne and Kate. If you loved this episode, please leave a review. And if you hated it, email us. We want to hash it out. Love us or hate us, don't forget to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. And keep it complicated.